I live my life a quarter mile at a time. This is the nine days of Fast and Furious. Welcome to the nine days of Fast and Furious, Monkey Off My Backlog's first limited series. I'm your host, Tessa Suela. With me is Sam Morris and our special guest, friend of the pod, Steve Guntley of the Ultra 64 podcast and the Rogers List podcast. Is that all the podcasts you have going on right now? Uh, that's all the ones that I'm running right now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> How are you doing today, Steve? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I feel like I'm part of the family. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like we have sort of accumulated our own squad over the last uh, few episodes. We've had several really great guests, and it's it's turning out to be quite a team. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the seventh film of the franchise. But first, we have to talk about our holiday spirit. And I know, Steve, you had mentioned before we started recording, you've been watching a lot of Christmas movies recently. Oh, my goodness, yes. Over on my uh, uh, Instagram, I've been writing a review of a new Christmas movie every day. The only rule is it has to be a movie I've never seen before. So I'm getting to catch up on a lot that I've missed. Uh, it also turns out that a lot of the ones I missed out on are very, very bad. Uh, but <laughs> but I have found a couple of gems so far. Uh, I, I would highly recommend uh, Klaus on Netflix. It's an uh, animated film uh, about the origins of Santa Claus. That really just charmed my pants off. I thought that was a delightful movie. Uh, and if you're looking for something dark and weird and violent and scary, uh, there's a French movie called Dial Code Santa Claus. Uh, it's known over here as Deadly Games. It's from 1990. It came out, like, I think a month or two before Home Alone did. And it's kind of like an R-rated Home Alone. It's about a psychotic killer who breaks into this kid's mansion. But the kid is a super genius who's rigged a bunch of traps throughout the entire house uh, it's, it's it's completely insane uh, and totally worth watching if you're in the mood for something a little darker this year. And is that a, a Christmas sweater I spy? This is a Christmas sweater. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll let you guys get a better look. Nice. nice. I love it. That's great. Because, of course, Gremlins is, in fact, a Christmas movie for sure. Gremlins is indisputably a Christmas movie. Absolutely. But there does seem to be some dispute. And you know what I'm going to ask you, right? Okay, bring it. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Die Hard is absolutely a Christmas movie. I'm going to borrow something from uh, from one of a friend of friend of my show, uh, uh, a woman named Diana Goodman, who runs the show 302010. Her rule is uh, if you take the plot of the movie and swap it out for Fourth of July instead of Christmas, does it affect the story? Which is why Die Hard absolutely is a Christmas movie because it would alter the story quite a bit if this was a 4th of July thing. And that's why, you know, Edward Scissorhands also counts. Pretty much every Shane Black movie also counts. So, yes. <laughs> I hadn't thought about the Shane Black thing, but you are absolutely right about that. Yeah. We've been asking all of our guests this, top three Christmas movies of all time. Oh my goodness, top three of all time. I'm, I think I'm a little boring in that regard because I'm just such a classic movie nerd. So I think uh, It's a Wonderful Life does have to go number one. I think that is the best of all time. I will also follow with uh, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas because I am a very stereotypical 90s kid who uh, watched that movie to death when I was very young. Uh, and for a third one, I don't know if this is going to be like actual top 10, but I want to bring in something a little different. There's a movie 
from 1994 called The Ref with uh, Dennis Leary, Judy Davis, and uh, Kevin Spacey, but whatever. That's oh, so good. It but really, it's so good. It's a really good movie about like a, a, a couple that's like having a meltdown and then uh, this burglar kind of hijacks them and keeps them hostage and he has to kind of referee their really nasty marital fighting and it all takes place right at Christmas as their horrible family is about to converge on the house. It's very tense. It's very smart. It's very funny. Uh, I watch that movie every year. You know, Leary had like a thing going for a few years there where he was like the person you go to who like speaks the truth. You know, like, oh, I'm trying to remember the stand up special. No cure for cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So like no cure for cancer. The ref first few seasons of Rescue Me. Like and he was the guy on MTV like back in the early 90s. He would do these little interstitial bits like in between commercials where he would just kind of rant about something that was affecting him, you know, and it's like, yes, it's that kind of Gen X comedy that like really super doesn't fly anymore. But like, it's kind of a it's kind of a fun time capsule to look back on. I had forgotten that he did those. I remember the Donald Logue taxi driver ones. Right. Those yeah, were yeah, great. Yeah. yeah, those were awesome. Hey, Andy, we were just asking people about their holiday spirit. Have you had a lot of holiday spirit recently with your infant? Has she been getting into the, the Christmas spirit? Oh, uh, well, we are covered in snow right now. Uh, that's about the closest thing that we have is, uh, is a lot of snow. But her name is uh, Christmas, so... Hmm. That's true. I guess I guess her name does mean Christmas. She's like, I bring the Christmas. Yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and lots of uh, burped up milk too. Pretty much just <laughs> nice. like your drunk uncle. Oh man, that's what I brought. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just like the drunk uncle and eggnog. Uh, it Noel brings <laughs> gross milk. All right, it is time before we start getting into talking about Furious Seven to talk about our podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Do, 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 do. Sam, what did you make today? While it is, surprise, surprise, not an actual holiday cocktail because I'm not, I mean, I don't know. I feel like any drink that you drink around the holidays is a holiday cocktail, but this one is a nice Christmas red color. So it is actually an Americano, which fun fact, if you have actual working taste buds is probably one of the only drinks that has Campari in it. That you can probably withstand. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. An Americano to me is espresso and water. Explain yourself. Been, I've been riffing on James Bond a lot lately because of how much these films remind us of Bond films. So I'm hoping I'm not going to get this wrong. It's been a rough few months. But in Thunderball, you actually see Bond preparing a drink in his hotel room. You watch him put ice in a glass. You watch him put red liquid number one in a glass, red liquid number two in a glass, dump some club soda on it, stir it, and start drinking it. That is an Americano. An Americano is a simple cocktail, two ounces Campari, two ounces sweet vermouth. However much you want to put in a soda water, you stir it up, you put in a little lemon squeeze if you want for garnish, and then drink it. That's it. That's an Americano. It's called an Americano because when Americans came over, once you dilute it with the soda water and the sweet vermouth, the Campari is not so bitter. So it's one thing that Americans could stand to drink. And so this is a long tradition of people making fun of Americans because they won't try things. Like, here, have your fizzy soda Campari drink. Enjoy. Oh, that actually makes sense because, okay, according to the internet, it's a cafe Americano is what I was thinking of. And it's watered down espresso, so... 
just learning new stuff all the time on the episode of Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Sam, before we get into our super in-depth film discussion of what has got to be the most bonkers Fast and Furious movie that we have seen so far, please, could you summarize the movie for us? I can. And there are a couple of ways to go with this. One would take us like five minutes, but here's my best way to summarize this film. There are two movies happening alongside each other. The first movie, very, very simple Bond plot. Mr. Nobody, played by Kurt Russell, recruits Dom and his gang to go after a MacGuffin known as God's Eye, which will allow, it's the ultimate surveillance tool. Supervillain Jaconda already has it, and they have to get it back, and they also need the hacker Ramsey, who created it, to do the thing that they want to do. That is the essential plot of the movie, or at least the first parallel plot. Here's the second parallel plot. It is all about Deckard Shaw, played by Jason Statham. Here's how it goes. Shaw's in your hospital. Shaw's in your office, on your computer. Shaw's in Tokyo, but Shaw's also on your front porch. Shaw finds out what happens when both people win at chicken with Dom Toretto. Or lose, I'm not sure. Shaw's in your chase scene. Shaw's at your party. Shaw's in your climactic helicopter drone hijink scene. Shaw is doing his best 300 reenactment with Dom on top of the parking garage. And Shaw's in your super duper max prison. How's that? I actually think that's a pretty good summary of this movie according to the vantage point of Deckard Shaw. But let's talk a little bit about Shaw. That's actually a pretty good segue, I think, into our first discussion, which is at the end of the last movie, we get this tag teaser, I guess, of Shaw, of Deckard Shaw, I should say, because we've already seen Owen Shaw, his brother, who's played by Luke Evans. We see Luke Evans at the beginning of this film as well. He is in a coma, I assume for good. I'm not sure. This, this, this series of movies is more like a soap opera than it is <laughs> anything else. So we see Deckard, you know, swearing revenge, but we saw him at the end of the last movie basically killing Han, which is where we get the hashtag justice for Han. So I had no idea going into this that Jason Statham's character was villainous. I had no idea we were rooting against him. I knew he was part of the franchise. So I would like to hear first from you, Steve, what is sort of your opinion on this Deckard Shaw character and how he's introduced as sort of this major villain of this film? I mean, it's it's a super fun addition to the sh to the to the series. Like, I really enjoy having uh, uh, Jason Statham here. I will be honest, though, like I've seen each of the movies that he appears in, and I'm still not entirely clear on what his deal is. Like, I don't know if he's part of a criminal syndicate. I don't know if he's some kind of super spy. I don't know if he's like. I, I don't I don't know exactly what his deal is. I understand his motives in this are like revenge based for like them almost killing his brother. I understand that, but it seems to be like he's wildly connected. Uh, he's infinitely strong and powerful, and I'm not entirely sure what uh, what the what the mechanisms are that kind of keeps him going. Like I don't I don't fully understand, and that's one of the things I like about this movie is just that it's kind of like. It, it's kind of like a Fast and Furious movie crashing into a different genre. It's just it's just driving headlong. At one point, even Kurt Russell even says, like, you don't really know what you've wandered into here. You know, and there's this war between, quote unquote, shadows and ghosts. And like, 
you don't fully know what's going on, but it's just kind of funny. The idea that these guys just wound up driving their car real fast until whoops, we're in a superhero movie. Yeah. Is this fast and furious ghost protocol? (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. They even go to Abu Dhabi. Andy, what do you think about Jason Statham's entrance into this franchise? I mean, it fits everything else about this franchise. It, it doesn't need explanation. It doesn't need discussions. Uh, He's there. He has an accent. And as someone who has been told multiple times that I look just like Jason Statham, that I'm just as strong as Jason Statham, (laughs) that that Jason Statham is probably playing all of his characters based on me, uh, I'm for it. I think it's hilarious that his accent definitely does not match Luke Evans' accent from the last movie. Like They don't even try to make them sound like they came from the same neighborhood, which I think is great. Right. Yeah. Uh, and no, no comment on uh, the future movie, Hobbs and Shaw, which featured Statham more heavily. The other thing that happens when we, cut, when we go from six to seven is the change of director. So Justin Lin has directed more mo- of these movies than anybody else. He's been at the wheel, as it were, since movie three. But we actually changed to director James Wan, who would go on to then make Aquaman later. And this was partially... Yeah, this is partially because Justin Lin was actually still finishing six by the time that they had started filming seven. They wanted him to do seven, but he thought it would actually compromise the final product. He wanted to be fully committed to six. So he allowed uh, James Wan to take take over the helm here. What do we think about the transition between directors? I enjoy James Wan's style. Uh, he, he, you know, starting with like the Saw movies, like which I, I don't like, but you know, he. You you get to the Conjuring films and it's like, oh, wow, okay, this guy's got kind of like a visual style. Like he's got a very clean kind of cinematic s- style to him. And I think he does a very good job with, uh, you know, the the Fast and Furious is just all about these incredible automotive set pieces, these car wrecks and these chases and everything like that. And this one, it takes it to a bonkers new level. And I think uh, he does a good job of like framing it and keeping things uh, moving at a good clip. It works. Uh, I know. Uh, I know Justin Lin is supposed to be a pretty cool dude. He did direct some of the most iconic episodes of Community. James Wan, also cool dude. So cool dudes all yeah. around. I think that James Wan almost has more of an eye for like superheroes type type storytelling, and I'm not just saying that because I'm thinking of Aquaman. But like Sam mentioned, the end of this is very the fight between Dom and Shaw, especially is very like 300, like almost Zack Snyder style filmmaking. And so for me, like, that's kind of what I thought of is that this is like Justin Lin, but on like a more massive scale in some ways. And I don't know how much of that is James Wan's doing or how much of it's Universal's doing, but I thought that that was that was interesting. I mean, you could see the series kind of trending in this direction as it goes. Like each episode gets just a little bit sillier and a little bit sillier and a little bit crazier. And, uh, you know, when you think back to the very first movie, which was supposed to be, it was based on an article. It was supposed to be about like the gritty real life world of underground street racers. And now they're driving cars out of planes and they're, they, they're seemingly impervious to car accidents. And like it, it, it's, it's completely wild. The directions it took, but it's also been kind of incrementally leading in this direction, you know, so it's not out of the blue. Yeah. So that that chase scene, I think uh, that, that you refer to with with cars flying through the air. I think it starts off with the the most grounded, ironically, moment in this film, which is Roman saying, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. This is a terrible idea. And then ends with 
I guess only the second or third, I don't know, fifth most incredulous point in the movie where Dom is cornered and I'm like, oh, somebody's going to come get hit. Nope. He's just going to roll all the way down the hill. That's, that's the point here. But of course, you talk about all the car pranks in this movie. Tessa's been waiting for this one because she knew it happened. She'd seen it. And, and she wanted to know when we got to it, if it was as out there, as ridiculous as she thought. So Tessa, as Brian reminds us, they didn't just go through one building. <laughs> it, it, was, it was three. They went and they hopped multiple times. And that's cool. Tessa, what'd you think? You've been waiting for it. I have been waiting for it. I've said on uh, past episodes that I wasn't sure how they got from one to whatever movie it was where they jumped cars between buildings because I remember seeing that scene in the trailers and I was like, I don't even know how we even get to this point. Well, we finally got to this point. It happened. They jump cars twice. So through three buildings in Abu Dhabi and, and they're very iconic buildings. I mean, anytime a film films in Abu Dhabi, like, you know, exactly where you are just by the landscape there. And so I, it's just as awesome and as ridiculous as I thought it was going to be. I mean, I don't, they destroy like so much priceless art in the third building that I'm not sure. Like I, I felt it kind of a little bit in pain when I saw them going through the, the clay warriors <laughs> in the third building. But I also kind of like I, this, this franchise really, I, we've talked about this before. It really balances earnestness and ridiculousness in a way that's just very endearing. Like it doesn't lean too far one way or the other. And I think that even with, you know, these incredible set pieces that don't even make sense, these car pranks to the max, they. What? Oh, hold on. They do make sense. They make perfect sense. You just need to imbibe beforehand. With Sam's holiday cocktail. Mm. Well, as someone who doesn't imbibe beforehand, Andy, they don't make sense, but they do make sense in the context of this world. Like they they make sense because these characters believe that they make sense, and because these are endearing characters, it all makes sense to us. So I really appreciated that, even though the car pranks are ridiculous. And I realize that you two haven't been on the other episodes. We have been differentiating between racing which is what cars are made to do, even right. when you're pushing it to the max, and car pranks, which are things that cars are not made to do. And we're borrowing that terminology from uh, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green's Righteous Gemstones. They, they okay. use the word car pranks to talk about something that happens in a car. So that's what, when I'm saying that, that's what I am referring to. Fair. <laughs> there are a lot of car pranks. Cars are not supposed to go out. Go, Cars are not supposed to jump out of planes. They're not supposed to go between buildings. That That is not what a car is meant to do. But they do it in the, this particular film. However, we also get more other stunts. We get rock stunts and Vin Diesel stunts. How do we feel about the rock's role in this? The rock kind of sits it out for a lot of the time. Yeah, he, uh, he, he just uh, spends most of his time in a hospital bed. I'm wondering if he and uh, Vin Diesel were having some more contract beefs or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I enjoy all the ridiculous like on the ground fight scenes, too, you know, and uh, plenty of good rock action. We get to learn that he has a daughter just kind of casually. She's dropped in there and she's small and foul mouthed, And uh, that's that's kind of a fun addition. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, kind of going back to the car prank idea, I think that's kind of the moment when I turn the corner on this series, because like. You know, I, I, I watched the first one. I was like, all right, it's fine. It's done. The second one was terrible. And I, then I just kind of dropped off the series. 
until somebody's like, have you seen Fast Five? Oh my God, this movie's so good. It's so good. You have to go see it. So I finally saw it. And that's the moment it becomes this world where a car is the best tool for any job. And and that's when I just kind of realized this is just this has become like this wild action movie fantasy series that has no relation to reality whatsoever anymore. And it's it's fully OK to be on, to, on board and enjoying it. And The Rock with his oversized muscles and ridiculous uh, 80s action movie persona is a, a perfect encapsulation of that. If we're calling those car pranks, I think my the highlight scene for me is what I would call a cast prank, where uh, a cast is treated the- disdainfully. Yeah. He, f- yeah, he flexes uh, his way out of the cast. He doesn't just pull it off. He flexes his way out. I imagine that's how he removes his shirts at the end of the day, just in real life. Just... <laughs> <laughs> It's a scene that this series needed. I didn't know I needed it, but in my heart, that's how it is, right? You, you, you know, it's it's like life advice, right? You just flex out of the cast. And exactly. If you're if you're being held back, and you can just imagine, just like as he's, you know, like I can just imagine a nurse just walking by right at that moment and going, "No, I can smell what's cooking in there. I'm leaving. We're gonna <laughs> let that happen." He also has one of the best lines, I would say, of this entire film at the end, where he's like, "Woman, I am the cavalry." With the, <laughs> he, he double taps the drone. I, I just, he's great in this, I think. All right, what do we want to talk about next? I don't know. Oh, actually, I was going to ask <clears throat> Sam this. Okay. So, Sam, you, we've talked a lot about Bond and how these, this series takes its DNA from Bond. After watching this movie, I referred to this as the working class Bond in a lot of ways because it does actually steal some DNA points from Bond, include, up to and including villains that seem like they should be in a Bond movie. But Sam, you said this one actually reminded you the most of the humor of Bond through Brian's character. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? After Connery left Bond for the second time, there was genuine conversation about replacing him with an American actor. And there were a couple they had in mind. But of course, that's when the decision was made that Bond would always be British. And so, you know, we come up with these these questions what would an american bond look like and when tessa said that it, it's this is the obvious answer fast and furious is the american james bond franchise in a in a very interesting there's some good political kind of identity issues that are tied up in that and perhaps it's the american bond we would like to have but but what this does is it it brings it down from that kind of elite spy thing you know bonds the the dresser just the you know the this denizen of high culture kind of snobby in some senses and of course that gets taken down a notch with daniel craig but this is very much as tessa said like a working class bond where these are real people doing incredible things as opposed to somebody who's not a real person doing incredible things wait do you do you think that this is a documentary sam yes yes it is okay i i really like the comedy of uh, Brian in this movie, and I'm sad we're never going to see more of that because he was really developing after his character arc ended into more of a bit character, somebody who's always good for laughs. Like your your KO moment on a bad guy is like banging his head against a button or doing something and watching him go by, you know, which is a very James Bond sensibility thing. So that was that was really enjoyable. So I, I want to put this out there. For, for everybody, last episode, we talked a little bit about, in terms of antics, we talked about how Fast and Furious 6 really brought 
a lot of the 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 women of the cast up to the forefront and had some really good girl fights, which of course I'm I'm saying in honor of Michelle Rodriguez's first film, Girl Fight. Mm-hmm. We got some good girl fights in this movie, including a new former MMA star, Ronda Rousey, entering the field. What do we what do we think about some of the fights, some of the girl fights in this movie? You know, uh, I am down with like an elaborately choreographed action sequence with both uh, women wearing ball gowns. Like, I think they pulled that off very well. I think this is kind of just before the point where we as a culture kind of realize that Ronda Rousey super sucks. (laughs) She's been very like transphobic and like kind of nasty on Twitter and everything like that. And genuinely a terrible actress, like very good, very, very bad with dialogue. If you want to hear further examples of that, check out Mortal Kombat 11, uh, where she plays Sonya Blade. Uh, just just does not have a way with dialogue, but she has a very intimidating physical presence, and she's a good like physical performer. I, I'm surprised she was not in more of this. I had kind of a memory of like her coming back and, and there being another fight after this one with, uh, with Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, but no, I think that the DJ table seems to kind of take her out. As it has many of us. As has many of us. Yeah, DJ ended my life tonight. Yeah, it takes her all the way out into the Expendable movie, right? That she's Oh, was she in that? Okay, I haven't seen those. I believe so. These were fine. I I don't think they were great, but they were fine. Well, I I do like the continuation of the telenovela that is Letty's character arc in this. I we we left her in the last movie with amnesia after coming back from the dead, which is a classic telenovela turn, I guess, or classic novella. That is like, this is the last movie franchise you can probably get away with amnesia in. <laughs> like, amnesia is such a wild card to pull in the 20th century, like, or, you know, post-1980, you know? It's kind of a crazy turn to pull. I know we're going to, in, uh, in Fast 9, get Dom's brother, but I really wish it was just Vin Diesel and, like, a huge mustache. <laughs> <laughs> It feels appropriate. So I, I liked this, though. I liked the idea that she had to, like, go and find herself and, like, have all of these memories on her own. You know, like, I, I appreciated this development. And she definitely comes back because she's she's Dom's ride or die. And, like, that, that to me has been a really interesting through line throughout this whole thing. Plus, it gives us one of the best Vin Diesel lines of the entire series so far when she reveals that she remembers everything and that they're actually married, that they got married before he left her in the Dominican Republic. And she says, why didn't you tell me that we were married? And he says, you can't tell someone that they love you, which I think is like, he says so many great, wonderful lines. Like, just the only... the. The cheesiest stuff that only Dom Toretto can get away with saying because he genuinely believes it as a character. And I just thought this was such a great, like, sort of culmination of all of this drama and all of the this, like, obstacles that they've had to go through over the last couple of movies. Like, you can't tell someone that they love you. Wonderful line. I'm going to stand by that. I agree. Yeah, I liked I that that was a good moment. And I mean, it, it I liked that they've resolved it in this as well so that we don't need to keep doing with the uh amnesia thing forever but you know it's it's just uh i i always i respect that wild plot turn you know and it just kind of tells me that this series uh knows exactly what it is and what it wants to be and what it aspire like what the 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 audience it hopes to connect with this is sugar this is this is a junk food movie if you're looking if you're finding a whole lot of meaning in it then that's on you really because i think the movie kind of just really understands 
how goofy and dumb it is and uh, and just kind of celebrates that and leans into it. And that's why it's so much fun to watch. Well, and I think it really appeals to a non-white audience because that's, oh, yeah. that's, I mean, these movies are interesting because they're so like American exceptionalist, right? Like American muscle. But most of the people in this movies are not white and they are very embracive of a not white culture. And the, the storyline with Letty is just very much in that st- same storytelling tradition that a lot of the audience is going to resonate with. And so I, I just think that's fascinating. Oh yeah. And that's kind of been a reason for a lot of this series lasting success is that they have cast like a very diverse group of people in this movie. And it, so it connects like across multiple quadrants. So it's just kind of one more sign uh, that that marketing people and studio executives aren't really paying attention to. It's women women drive movie sales, and uh, people of non white people drive movie sales. Like this is what these are the people you should be reaching out to, and we're still just making a bunch of like straight white guy movies. And I will tell you, box office nerds, when Furious Seven looked like it might be the number two movie of all time, that was crazy. That was a crazy realization and then jurassic world just came and wiped it off the floor it's a it's a similar phenomenon of what of what happened with the dark knight and i don't know if i'm jumping ahead and talking about something we should be talking about but when uh when one of the principal actors in the movie uh dies tragically young before the film was released uh yeah same thing happened with the dark knight and that made it like that became the number two best-selling movie of all time and then this one comes out, uh, a similar thing happened to Paul Walker shortly before this came out. So, yeah, I think that there is a, a, a correlation with that. Yeah, we were definitely talking. We can go ahead and talk about Paul Walker's death, since that's definitely something that is at the center of this movie. I mean, it is definitely centralized, especially at the end. Paul Walker, you know, tragically died while fim- filming this movie. They had filmed quite a bit of it when he died. And but they were able to finish it using deleted scenes from other films, uh, footage from other films. They used a lot of stunt doubles and they used CGI to to finish this film. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me that they one that they finished this film because he's joining people like Brandon Lee from The Crow. He's joining people like Heath Ledger, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, and of course also Heath Ledger had done um i think about half of the imaginarium of dr parnassus before he died and so they had to like do some some movie um stuff to finish that film as well yeah this is this is really interesting the way that this has impacted this particular franchise but this film specifically how did you guys feel about the way that this was retooled or like that the way that they retooled brian's storyline around this it was interesting. Like, uh, uh, you could tell that there are moments of exposition, like or conversations that were supposed to be happening between Brian and Mia that are now Dom and Mia. Like, there's a scene where Dom's like, he's the best, or you're the best thing that ever happened to him. That feels like something that Brian should have said rather than like hearing that from her brother. And then you do start to notice, like, especially on a second rewatch, like, you start to notice how many wide shots there are, how often Paul Walker's character is in shadow or like only shot from the neck down. Uh, a couple things like that and and a lot of his story has been decentralized and they've uh they've made like his arc kind of being that he needs to go be with his family and that they give him a, a, an easy out at the end of the movie uh but you know and they did a couple of digital tricks and luckily they're not too terribly distracting i still think the the kind of famous like one of the last shots of the movie is him in the the front seat of his car looking over and his face has been digitally mapped onto his brother. And that looks 
weird. It's kind of hard to put your finger on why. I think there's just something that just kind of looks a little bit off about it. But you can tell that entire last sequence at the beach was it was it was largely to say they you can tell it was shot after the fact, like because it doesn't feel like it's a part of the same movie. It doesn't feel like it's resolving any kind of uh, conflict that's been set up in the movie, but it's giving the cast a chance to say goodbye and it's giving audiences a chance to say goodbye. And so there's something about it that like emotionally hits, even if, you know, you're not terribly invested in this character or this story or anything like that. It does get like very emotional at the end. His death made me much more shocked at the ending of the film because I went in with the expectations I think a lot of people went in with, which was, oh, oh, Brian's going to die. Jason Statham is going to kill Brian just like he killed Han. I I think that was a lot of expectations. And there was a lot of uh, the first time you watch it, it feels a lot of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, like, oh, we're we're doing the, uh, you know, this is his last one. This is his last hurrah kind of thing. It works. It works when you realize Brian gets to live and he gets to be happy. You have to imagine there was a conversation because, you know, Paul Walker, of course, died doing some of the things you see him doing in this movie. He died in a high speed car wreck in like a fancy car. The irony of which I think is is really uh, very cruel. But I think if you have a scene where he's dying in a movie like this with a lot of like cars flying around and things like that, I think you're inviting that immediate parallel and then it just kind of gets a little icky, you know? So I think I think it is a nicer choice to send Brian off. Uh, it is a shame because it essentially writes Jordana Brewster out of the movie too, but she has also just spent the last like four movies just kind of like sitting at home worrying. So uh, it, it may, hopefully she'll still get some paychecks from this and, and she won't have to do that part. I, I thought the thing about it would be a, a, a really bad case of irony for him to die in that way. I definitely thought that. But I found myself really emotionally affected in that scene on the beach. And then I just, I just, my entire body tensed up hmm. because this is the, this is the pop culture training, right? This is part of being like a black belt in pop culture. This is Honor Majesty's Secret Service. We have all the time in the world to be together in family. Other guys toast. Mm-hmm. But then you remember, no, we can't do that for the reasons that Andy, you just discussed. Uh, and so it kind of it kind of undercut it for me because I was so tense the whole time. So that like kind of emotion, which somehow is as as you point out, this this series has actually earned. Yeah, somehow it's earned. But then it's undercut by the oh god action movie. They're gonna come in and take it. Oh no, they didn't. Okay. But also this is this is a series that's established itself as one where death is not permanent, and so I think nobody. Yeah, there's no, there's no, you know, because uh, I mean, I don't know if it's it's a spoiler from the trailers for Fast 9, but another deceased character is coming back and like, it's, it's not permanent. And so you wouldn't be able to like explain away, like, I don't know, it's not something you wouldn't end a franchise film like this on a death that is indisputably permanent, a character death and a human death that is never going to come back. I just feel like that wouldn't sit right for this franchise. So I never really felt like afraid that uh, um, that the character was actually going to die off. They were kind of pulling that. You were talking about the black belt training. They were kind of pulling that with Kurt Russell's character for a little bit. Like yeah. he was, I mean, you know, like you said, if you're the black belt in pop culture and you understand the cues and everything like that, it really looked like they were leading him to die, you know, because like, and then, uh, uh, you know, with him not, it felt a little anticlimactic. Like, I don't know. And I don't remember if he comes back or not. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure if he was going to die or turn. Yeah, yeah. You know, but like, like it wasn't, and I was amazed that he lived and was on the same side as he started. That felt like the most inconceivable part of this movie. Yeah, I kept waiting for another shoe to drop with this character because he kind of plays this very, like, uh, you know, it's spies, right? They're always stabbing each other in the back, and that's kind of what you're used to with this type of government agent. What do we think about the inclusion of Kurt Russell as Mr. Nobody? I, it felt very M of me from, uh, for me from Bond, but what do we think about Kurt Russell? He was fun, you know? It's always good to see Kurt Russell in something, and but I agree, like, he's one of those... Generally, when you get a character like this who's so casual about all of like the life and death stuff that he's working with, it's because like you're gonna get a moment where he just like casually turns on you because he doesn't give a shit. But like th- from the moment he shows up, he's just like likable older dude, and everybody just kind of is on board with them. And of course, he's got a branded bucket of Corona ready for you at any moment. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I I agree. Like I feel like a twist. I felt like a twist was coming. And maybe it still is, like, down the line. But uh, at this point, it's just like, yeah, it was kind of a weird, like, anti-fake-out. And, of course, we get Guardians of the Galaxy bingo. We have Kurt mm-hmm. Russell. We have Jaiman Ansu. And we also have, of course, Vin Diesel, who plays Groot. So I'm looking forward to seeing maybe more Guardians of the Galaxy members in this particular franchise. Maybe we'll, maybe we can get Zoe Saldana to, to play a car thief at some point. Yeah. Uh, but Jaiman Ansu, he's sort of like the big bad of this, but he's totally eclipsed by Jason Statham, I think. He's only in a couple of scenes, but do we think he, he adds anything to this particular franchise besides just being kind of a plot point? We were kind of talking about this before we started recording. Like, I, I, I feel like Jaiman Ansu is one of our most underappreciated actors. You know, if you saw him early in his career... We debuted with Amistad and they showed up in Blood Diamond and the movie In America where he's really brilliant. He's a two-time Oscar nominee. Like he's a very, very talented, powerful actor. But for the last decade plus, he's just been playing like third build heavy in franchise movies. So he's like got a bit part in Charlie's Angels. He's got a bit part in Aquaman. He's got a bit part in Guardians. He's got all these little tiny bit parts. And so like I feel like people aren't really using him properly. Like, even here, he doesn't even get to be, like, the main bad guy. You know, I would even say Tony Jaw gets more stuff to do than Jaiman Ansu does. Not that I'm complaining. Tony Jaw is an amazing physical performer to watch. But, like, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 hope, uh, I hope people kind of start to turn the corner on Jaiman and uh, uh, recognize he's a brilliant actor and start giving him meteor parts here. And then, of course, I couldn't go by without mentioning the other new character that we get. We get Ramsey, who is a hacker who created mm. the God's Eye and that they have to rescue uh, near the beginning of this film, Nathalie Emmanuel, who listeners of the show might recognize as Miss Sandy from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So happy to see her in this film. I know that it was pre-Game of Thrones, um, or maybe at the same time as Game of Thrones with, for her, mm-hmm. but that character had such a bad ending on Game of Thrones. It was just kind of nice to see her in this film, like actually doing things and like reacting to all the shenanigans that they ask her to go through this, this poor woman, like she has to like, she gets thrown out of cars into other cars and onto cars and down cliffs. And I, I don't know. I just think that she, she does a great job, you know, for what it is, but definitely liked seeing her have a better ending here than in Game of Thrones. For sure. And she's fun. She's got a good screen presence. And I like that they're setting up kind of the love triangle with her and Tej and Roman. Like, 
kind of a fun idea. You know, it, one of my most welcome surprises from this franchise was like how much I enjoyed Ludacris in all of these movies. Like how he's kind of become like my favorite character, which is like ridiculous, but he, it, it's ludicrous. He might even say, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like her. Like, um, she doesn't get a whole hell of a lot to do, but she does. She is a character with like utility, like beyond like what Mia gets, you know, she's, she's very much a part of the crew. Yeah. And I think what to kind of wrap this up before we get to our fast facts of the, the episode. So in the last episode, we talked about how Owen Shaw was sort of the antithesis of Dom and his crew, right? Yeah. Dom and his crew are a family. They hit that very hard in these movies. But then Owen Shaw is very anti-family. He's very like all parts can be replaced. Like if somebody dies, it's because they made a mistake. Like he, he has no loyalty at all. It's just very efficiency, very much get the job done. Jason Statham's Shaw is family versus family, right? Mm. Like this idea is that he's coming back to avenge his family and he's going up against another family to do so. And I thought that that parallel was really interesting, even though Jason Statham works alone. What what did you guys think about that? It's an interesting conflict that they could have hit a little harder. That would have been, yeah, like, because like I said, I was left with only kind of a vague appreciation of what Shaw wanted or like how he was this strong and powerful, you know, like, He's just not an incredibly well-developed character. I, I think that would have been a more interesting conflict if they'd set it up as like Shaw's V Toretto's or something like that. Get some kind of like family versus family blood feud going on. Uh, I would I I would like to see that. I think that's a better idea uh, than kind of how they use him here. Fully agreed with you, Steve. Well, I was going to say, I do think it's hilarious that like Brian has been sort of like sucked into the Toretto's. Like technically he's an O'Connor, but really he's a Toretto. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> All right, let's get on to the fast facts for this episode. Some of them we've mentioned already, but I'll, I will go through them. In this film, as we mentioned, uh, CGI and body doubles were used quite a bit to uh, to help create the to finish out the story of Brian because of Paul Walker's death most of the way through filming. And as Andy mentioned, Caleb Walker and Cody Walker, who were his brothers, did some voice work and were some of the doubles for him in this. And so that 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 was really interesting to me. Fast fact number two, the garage conversation scene between Mia and Brian, where she tells him that she is pregnant, was a deleted scene from Fast Five that they actually just picked up and put right over into this particular movie. Number three, over 230 cars were destroyed in this film alone. Wow, that seems (laughs) low. 230. Fast fact number four. So there were several people who were considered for the part of Mr. Nobody before Kurt Russell got involved. Denzel Washington was actually offered the part, but couldn't do it because of other conflicts. Taylor Lautner was offered the part. <laughs> what? That is the strangest like casting decision. That is a direction to go in. I'm not sure it was the right direction. This is the F- the FBI's most powerful intern. Like what? Why would they? <laughs> what are they doing? Well, he is a werewolf. Oh, so. sure. Yeah, that is a that's a bonus. That, that That is actually where the Fast and Furious franchise is going. We're actually going to do supernatural stuff after this. <laughs> and Halle Berry was also considered for the role of Mr. Nobody. Would watch that, actually. I would have watched that. They kind of gave her a similar role in the second Kingsman movie. So, yeah, yeah, she's she'd be good in that part. Fast fact number five. Jason Statham was originally supposed to play Owen Shaw in, in Fast 6. 
but he couldn't because of other commitments. So Vin, Di- Vin Diesel actually really wanted to work with him just in general. And so he used his producing power to get him into Fast 7 or Furious 7. So that's actually why we have Jason Statham as this character's brother instead of as Owen Shaw himself. It's a good call. And I feel like this should be a movie, like if you have any friends who are like worried about losing their hair or feeling insecure or anything about that, I think you need to show them this movie, which is <laughs> the poster movie for hot bald men. Like I think uh, I think this is kind of it. I think this is how you can really like emphasize to your friend, look, this, this, is, the, this is where you're going. Like everybody in this movie is bald and looks amazing. Yeah, the one dude with hair. We get rid of him at the end of the movie. Come on. Yeah, yeah. He has no place here anymore. (laughs) And finally, fast fact number six. In the first fight scene between Hobbs and Shaw, in the office at the FBI where Shaw is hacking into his computer to figure out who the team is that took down his brother, The Rock uses his finishing move, Rock Bottom, on Statham in that first fight scene. So we do get some wrestling callback references there. I'm I'm holding out for the people's elbow later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Sam, give us some furious stats. Okay, so we're moving up and up with budget. This was budgeted at $160 million. Did it make its budget back at the opening weekend domestic box office like some of the early movies did? No, but it got close at 147. Now, the total box office almost double what Fast 6 made, 1.5 Billion with a B, as opposed to billion with a Q, dollars. Hmm. All right, so of course it won the weekend box office. After that, we have Home, Get Hard, Hmm. Disney's first foray into the huge mistake that is, let's just make all the cartoons in the live action, Cinderella, and the second movie in the Divergent series, Insurgent. And now we're back to our, our two running totals for the entire series. First of all, we are trying to decide whether or not the corona element of this series is overblown. Mm. It may or may not be, but in this movie, it certainly is fun. Because Kurt Russell makes a whole meal out of this, right? (laughs) Man, those monks, I don't know about the celibacy, but they sure made good beer. So both corona moments are Kurt Russell talks about, you know, his, his Belgian ale and then Dom says he's more of a Corona man. And as you mentioned, Steve, he was ready for him with his bucket of, bucket of Coronas and a bottle opener. That like, guy's classy. The bucket ha- had Corona written on it. Did he get it from yes. like Senior Frogs or something? Like it, it feels like, <laughs> s- like where is he getting these buckets? Like, does the government have a contract? And do you, not, do you not buy your Coronas from the army surplus? <laughs> not, apparently well, not as often as I should be. Well, and of course, the, and of course, as we know, the most logical inconsistency of this entire movie is the second Corona reference when Kurt Russell says, I'll get you an entire keg of it. And it's like, what? Mm. We drink them out of bottles. That is our thing. I don't know if I've ever seen Corona on tap before. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably it's got to be a thing. But I've, what I don't you, think I've ever what seen are you going to wedge your citrus into? Like, yeah, like you got to put it in the mouth of the bottle. I mean, I can only think of Dos Equis. Yeah. yeah. Oh, weird. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if I've ever seen it. So, hmm. so we've learned something here. IMDb goofs. Let's uh, let's add some information. All right. There. So we are at a total eight Corona mentions over the series. Now seven movies. Eight mentions of Corona. I don't know. Not a lot. Now, family, though. 
And I want to preface this by saying we do not count talks about brothers or anything. The word has to be used. I will accept familia. I will accept family, accept family in other languages. But just remember, there's a lot of talk of brotherhood. I'm not counting any of these in this tally. We have six mentions of family. We have Mia. Mia always gets the first, you know, that's her thing to do, Steve, in this movie. Mm. Talk about family and stay at home. So Mia tells Brian to protect the family. Jason Statham comes in hot and saying, you messed with family, which they get. Kurt Russell mentions family in the briefing. Mr. Nobody mentions. Letty says, Han was my family too. And then we get the we get another what's real is family speech on the plane. And then finally, at the end, we have another great line. I don't have friends. I have family. <laughs> so now we are up to a total of 25 mentions of family. In addition to all the brother talk, all the great stuff that happens in this movie. So that's it. That's your furious stats. I like it. All right, guys, it's time to scatter. Join us tomorrow for the next installment of The Nine Days of Fast and Furious, where I honestly ask the question, where can we go from here? Over the next two days, we have more guests and lots more holiday spirit lined up. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout, because Jason Statham and The Rock are taking over for Santa this Christmas Eve. Watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your Fast and Furious thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MonkeyBacklog and email us at MonkeyOffMyBacklog at gmail.com. Where can we find you online, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me uh, at Ultra64Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram, and that's also my Gmail address. Uh, You can find uh, that show uh, wherever you get your podcasts, on iTunes, on uh, Spotify, on Stitcher, all of those places. I have another show that's called Roger's List, where I'm watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. Uh, Tess has been on there. Andy's been on there. Sam's going to be on there. We're all going to be on here at some point. Um, And uh, that's been a lot of fun. You can find that at Roger's List Pod at Twitter and on Instagram and everywhere else. Uh, And the other thing is I'm going to be, I think by this time, I'll be guesting on an episode of Video Game Apocalypse coming up, talking about the uh, Game of the Year episode. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and I think that's it. Thanks. And also, Roger's List is a really fun co- podcast to be on. You should check it out. Definitely. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. You can find Andy on Twitter and on Letterboxd at Hebrews Pale Ale and me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Also, check out our regular weekly episodes of Monkey Off My Backlog, as well as our newest series, Monkey Nights. Our special holiday theme song is Scott Holmes' version of Jingle Bells and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Find the podcast on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The only thing that matters is the people in this room. Right here, right now. Salute, me familia.